Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. At the end of the 1983 movie War Games, the artificial intelligence concludes that when it comes to nuclear war, the only way to win is not to play the game. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ, with this sermon entitled, When Outrage Meets Salty Grace, which covers Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. For more information, and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 4, 2 to 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carolyn. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination as we do each week. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. If you've been with us, you know that we've been working our way through this little book in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul that we call Colossians or the letter to the Colossians. Took a week break last week, uh, but back in this letter to finish it out this week and next week as we close out chapter four. And as I considered our passage that you just heard read, as I considered it for this week, it reminded me of an article that I read recently. The article was written in 2017 but I read it recently, and it was by a guy named Ted Olson, and there was a line in the article that really jumped off the screen at me as I was reading it on my computer. Short line, and, and uh, you may hear it and go, well, well, yeah, of course, but listen to it. It says this. He says, we live in an era of constant moral indignation. Again, you may hear that and say, well, yeah, okay, why did that jump off the page at you? Well, Here's why. Because there's many in the church that you would hear say today that our morals have been thrown out the window. No one has morality anymore in the larger culture. But Olson actually argues that the opposite is true. That in a way that we might not actually think about it, we're becoming more moral, just not the morals that line up with Scripture. So uh, we see it all the time. Right? We, we see within our context, within our political context even, we see two parties addressing the same issue, coming to starkly different conclusions, yet both sides are, in their opinion, deeply rooted in their moral compass. This is how Olson continued. He said, conservatives arguing against same-sex marriage based those arguments in sanctity. 
But in arguing for the Keystone Oil Pipeline, which was an event significant in 2017, they based their case in fairness. Likewise, using almost the same language, liberals argued against the pipeline against it by saying it violates the sacred order of things. So, in other words, sanctity. And argued for fairness when supporting same-sex marriage. Same issues, approaching very differently with the same language, but applied differently. He says, liberals and conservatives may be more alike than previously thought, as he quoted the researchers in the analyses of social issues and public policy. We demonstrated a near-complete role reversal relative to sanctity-based justifications of moral opinions. In other words, we're, we're actually caring deeply about the same issues, but because of our moral base, and you may say, or lack thereof, whatever, we come to very different conclusions and applications, almost completely opposite of one another. Now, where does this leave us? Well, in a word, where does it leave us as a culture, as a people, even you perhaps individually? Here's the word, outraged. Outraged. This is how another author, Ashley Gorman, she says it this way. She says, we can all agree America's cultural atmosphere is highly charged. The air hanging around nearly every conversation, political, racial, sexual, religious, or otherwise, seems infused with kerosene, ready for the smallest spark to burn attempts at civility to the ground. This social climate has been labeled outrage culture, and aptly so. Instead of complex people enjoying constructive dialogue, whether face-to-face -face or online, we're increasingly more like brute animals defending our territory. It's like we're all Gaston, wild-eyed and seething, with a pitchfork in one hand and lighted torch in the other, awaiting the signal to kill the beast on the other side. Now, it's, it's at this juncture, it's at this, this cultural context that we live in today that God's word actually slices through. In, in Hebrews, it, it, it's described, the word of God is described as a double-edged sword, piercing between both joint and marrow. Meaning, it pierces through our hearts. It pierces through what is our natural instinct. And so it's at this juncture that the word of God actually slices through our instinct as people of God to join in the outrage. You read through the New Testament, and it's undeniable, it's truly undeniable that one of the main applications of the reality of Christ in the life of the believer is that believers, followers of Jesus, are to be unique, to be different, to be set apart, to be, listen to this phrase, intriguingly calm. To, to be a non-anxious presence, as author Mark Sayers coined it. To be a people of grace and peace in the midst of a culture of outrage. And here's the hard truth for us right now. The hard truth is, far too often, we're not those things. We're, we're not unique. We're not different. 
We're not set apart. We're, we're not intriguingly calm. We're, we're not a non-anxious presence in a world of outrage. We're, we're not a people of peace and of grace. And I'm speaking collectively here. I'm thinking of the church as a whole, and certainly could, could be the Spirit may be pressing in with you individually, but I'm thinking as, as the church in America, this is not who we have been in recent years. Here's the good news for us. The good news for us is we can be, through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, doing what only He can, we can be, and we must be. We must be. The, the big picture summation of this passage, where it's taking us this morning, is, is to say this. is to say that as a people, and we'll see this in the text, is a people who are devoted to prayer and filled with thanksgiving. We by nature then become a people who are increasingly unique in the world. And what are the two distinguishing markers of our uniqueness according to this text? Is that we walk in wisdom and we move forward outwardly with salty grace. (laughs) I love that phrase. I read it at some point along the way. I can't remember who to attribute it to. But salty grace, people that are overflowing with wisdom and grace seasoned with salt. As Paul so often does, he starts inwardly. His his teachings always move from the inside out. It's always a, a measure of where God needs to take us will never be accomplished through moral reformation. It always has to be through the work of the Spirit. It has to be spiritual transformation. It has to be a heart-level reality. We must be changed from the inside out. And so in this passage, classic to the nature of Scripture and to Paul's teachings as well, is that we move from the inside out. And so we're going to break this passage down in a common way, a way that you may have heard before, but it plays perfectly with this passage. And that's to say the first part that we'll break down is is talking to God about people. We'll see that in the first few verses, and then we'll transition to flipping that to say talking to people about God. But watch how Paul starts in verses 2 through 4. I know we've heard it read for us, but we're going to read through it and just break it down uh, again, phrase by phrase. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So we'll start just again, little bit by little bit, work our way through this and see what we can glean from it. So we'll start with those first two words, continue steadfastly. Like I I probably don't need to break these down, but I'm going to anyway. Because there's different ways we could translate this word or these words in the Greek. So it's a verb meaning to be devoted to. It's one way we could say it. It can also mean give your time and energy to. It can also mean persevere in. Okay, so let's consider those three. The translation that we have in the English Standard Version here that I'm reading from is continue steadfastly, which is sufficient and good and fine. 
But maybe to help drive home the point more, let's read it again with these three other phrases. So we would say, Paul would be saying to us, be devoted to prayer. Give time and energy to prayer. Persevere in prayer. Because it's going to be so very easy, as we all know, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, how hard it can be to continue steadfastly in prayer, to persevere in it, to devote time and energy to it, to be devoted to it. You know, when, when, when the leadership transition of this church happened almost four years ago, when Randy uh, was um, passing the baton, so to speak, to me, and our executive leadership was transitioning leadership to a new group as well, um, it was a scary time, certainly for me. And, and not in any way to say that before I became the senior pastor of Perimeter Church, that, uh, that before that, we didn't emphasize prayer. Certainly we did. The stories that uh, just are laced all throughout the history of Perimeter are so uh, rich in prayer. It's a big part of God's faithfulness to us over the years is the way he's answered prayer here. But when, when I began to consider about this transition of leadership, I began to think, okay, there's, there's just no way this is going to go well. It doesn't matter how well Randy has set it up, and it doesn't matter how devoted I am to not messing it up. It's, it just is not going to go well unless not only me, but we as a people are truly radically dependent upon the Lord in prayer. So we talked about that a ton. And we need to keep talking about it because it's not just true for a transition of leadership back then. It's true for the Christian life today for every single one of us, individually and corporately. We are to be a people devoted to prayer, radical dependence in prayer upon the Lord to do what only he can do. This was one of the key characteristics of the early church. One of the, one of the main marks of the earliest church, of the early church, was prayer. I mean, just listen to the language. Three verses just to listen to very quickly, but so very needed. Acts 1, verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Talking about the 120 Christians that were gathered in the upper room before the Holy Spirit came upon them with tongues of fire. What were they doing in the upper room? They were praying. They were devoted to prayer. The next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 42, after Pentecost, the Spirit has been poured out. 3,000 have come to faith. And what does it say? It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. A few chapters later, as the church has just exploded and more and more people have come into faith, and they're trying to figure out how do we begin to lead this many people. We need deacons who will serve the people. It says this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. As he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, he quickly comes behind that with this phrase. And be watchful in it. And be watchful in it. Keeping alert. Staying awake. You know, it's interesting to me, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, I'm not trying to get you mad at me, just stick with me. It's interesting to me that we have heard that most in Christian contexts over the last several years as it pertains to waking up politically. But in the scriptures, what we hear Paul saying to us through the inspiration of the Spirit is wake up prayerfully. 
be awake. It's the same verb that Jesus used with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when they couldn't stay awake. In this sense, Paul is saying, be alert, stay awake, be vigilant in prayer. Be devoted to prayer and stick with it and know that this is where the battle is won primarily. I'm not saying don't hear. I'm not, look, be, be a good citizen. Be involved in politics. Care about those things. But if your instinct is first to be awake politically and outraged rather than to be awake prayerfully and at peace, then we've got a problem. The early Christians loved this word so much. This word in the Greek, it's gregario. They loved it so much, just be vigilant in prayer word, that they created a proper name out of it. Gregory. If your name is Gregory or Greg, be encouraged. Your name means be vigilant in prayer. Then he says this. Right behind that, he says, be devoted to prayer, be watchful in it. And then he says, with thanksgiving. This is such a major theme in Paul's writings. He brings it up all the time. He says, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Just in this previous chapter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he said it three times in three verses. He said in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, and to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's why I just said what I said a minute ago, by the way. If your instinct is, to, is to, be, uh, to wake up politically and be outraged, or is your instinct to be awake prayerfully and be at peace? Why? Because Jesus is peace. He's the Lord of peace. And if we're sitting, him for, sitting with him in long periods of time with a posture of prayer, devoted to prayer, devoted to radical repentance, it doesn't matter what's happening out there. It doesn't mean that we don't care about it. It doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to it. It just means that we look uniquely different because we are a people of peace in the midst of outrage. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, songs and hymns and spiritual songs with what? With thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. Giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. In some of his other letters to the Ephesians, he wrote, Give, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the Philippians, he said, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplica supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Paul uses words that just make us feel really uncomfortable. Did you pick up on them? Always? Everything? Giving thanks always and for everything to God? And you go, okay, there has to be some exceptions, right? Not according to Paul. And I get, listen, I'm not trying to be insensitive. We, we all walk through really hard things. Some of us, horrible things. But as Jerry Bridges once famously said, he says, there is no situation in our lives that we will ever face that is so dire that, it, that it's appropriate to cease giving thanks to God. Listen, 
It is incredibly hard, if not impossible, to be a person of outrage if you're filled with thanksgiving. I'll say it again. It is, it is incredibly hard, if not impossible, to be a person of outrage if you're filled with thanksgiving. He follows that up very quickly with a prayer request. Yes, even Paul had prayer requests. He says, at the same time, pray also for us. Who, who is us? Well, we know from the beginning of the book and from the end of the, the letter, he says, uh, he, he lets us know that it's Timothy, Epaphras, Aristarchus, Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, Justus, J-U-S-T-U-S, his name was Jesus, but they called him Justice. Luke, the author of the, the uh, Gospel of Luke, and Demas. So when he says us, that's who he's referring to. And what is he asking for? He says, pray for us. And what does he say? That God may open to us a door for the word. So he says, God's got to do it. We can't make it happen. It doesn't matter how faithful we are. It doesn't matter how hard we try. God's got to open the door. He's got to provide the way. He's got to open the ears of the listeners. He's got to open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ. So pray, 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 pray that God would open the door. So that we can do what? So that we can declare the mystery of Christ to a world that doesn't understand the gospel. Pray for us that we would clearly declare it. If you remember Paul's patterns, now he's in prison right now. He's going to say that in just a moment. But his pattern before he was arrested was that he would go first to the synagogues and preach the gospel to the Jews. And then he would go to the marketplace and to the streets to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Both of which were, could be, and often were, very hostile environments. Paul, we learned this from 2 Corinthians, that Paul would be filled with fear at times as he would go into those places. He told the Corinthians, as I came to you in fear and trembling, and I came to you not proclaiming eloquent or with wise speech, but I came proclaiming nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, God, give me clarity to be able to let people know who have no idea that their sin is separating them from God. That there is eternal realities called heaven and hell. And that the only way that we're rescued from the punishment of our sin that sends us to hell is through a loving God that would send a Savior to live the life that we can't leave, achieving the perfect standard of the law, and then die the death that our sin deserves, and then defeat death on, uh, through the grave by rising and resurrecting over the power of death that rules over every single human. And so the only way to defeat death to defeat sin, to inherit heaven, is through faith in Jesus. Oh God, empower me to proclaim that clearly. And I need people praying for me to do that. That's what Paul's saying to these Colossians. Would you pray for me and for us as we continue on these journeys, even as I am in shackles for proclaiming this gospel? I'm going to keep proclaiming it. To whoever can hear, to whoever, whoever will hear. Listen to this from Greg Stikes. He says this, If outsiders are not merely spiritually sick, but actually dead in their sin, Ephesians 2, then the only thing that will deliver them is a resurrection. 
If their vision is not merely blurred, but they are actually blinded by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, then they must receive their sight. Only God can raise the dead or give sight to the blind. We can strive to love outsiders and show mercy to them and build relationships with them and earn a hearing of the gospel. But if God doesn't give new life, then nothing will grow and flourish as a result of our activity. First and foremost, we must pray. Paul, at another time, was writing a young pastor, a very young pastor, who was given to fear and timidity. His name was Timothy. Timothy seeking to lead a church in the church in Ephesus. And he's writing to him, and he says, look, here's, here's what I want you to be grounded in. First and foremost, here's what I want you to be about. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 2. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, it's a form of prayer, prayers, intercessions, another form of prayer, and thanksgivings, there it is, prayer and thanksgiving, be made for all people, for kings and for all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. What a sweet and timely word, not only for Timothy, but for us. So he starts inwardly, and he says, look, let's be a people devoted to and giving energy to and persevering in prayer, and let's be awake in prayer, and let's be thankful in prayer, and then let's pray for the mission of the gospel to go forward with clarity that people may be saved. And then he turns, and he pivots just a little bit. He pivots from talking to God about people to, all right, Colossians, as this transforming work of Jesus in you makes its way out of you, how are you to be with those out there? So he transitions to talking to people about God. And he gives some instructions. He says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Walk in wisdom. He, he, he starts with this common phrase in Pauline literature. He, he talks a lot about this concept, this, this metaphor of walking. You'll, you'll see it a lot when you read through his various letters to the different churches. He, he'll say things often like, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of which you have been called. He told the Galatians in Galatians 5, walk in step with the Spirit. In this letter, Colossians, earlier, a few weeks back, we looked at verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then he said again in chapter 2, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Paul, Paul envisions the Christian life to be one where we are walking with the Lord such that he's doing his transformative work in us, and it's, it's using us and moving us outward in such a way that we would be a unique presence in the world as we walk. 
as we go. Another way to say it would be conduct yourselves wisely. This is godly wisdom. This isn't earthly wisdom. Paul talks about that as well in his letter to the Corinthians. Conduct yourselves wisely. Now, this isn't just a Paul thing. He's getting it from somewhere. Where is he getting it from? He's getting it from Jesus. Because what does Jesus say? Well, if you go back to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is getting ready to send out the 70 of the disciples, not just the inner 12, but more. And he's sending them out in pairs, and he gives them a warning, gives them a, a bit of an instruction. He says this to him. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So here's his instruction. So be wise. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You think about these Colossian believers. You think about this, these first century Christians in the Roman Empire. And um, they were taking it on the chin a lot. In the days of the early church, one commentator said this, in the days of the early church, believers were often slandered by outsiders. For example, they were called atheists because they served no visible gods. They were called unpatriotic because they did not burn incense before the image of the emperor. They were called immoral because out of necessity, they often had to meet behind locked doors and so that they would be protected. And so as a result of that, rumors began to fly as to what was happening behind locked doors. Atheist, unpatriotic, immoral, and as a result, significantly persecuted. And so in the context of that, Paul continues. And he says, make the best use of time. Literally translated, buy back time. Buy it back. Redeem it. You don't have much of it. So take advantage of every opportunity the Lord gives you. You connect it with what he said earlier, that we're praying that God would open a door for the gospel to go forward. So what's he saying? He's saying, take advantage, buy back the time that God's given you by taking advantage of every time God opens a door. Be alert, watch, see, where are the doors opening? Many of you knew Carl Wilhelm, longtime member at Perimeter and incredible man of God. Tremendous impact for the kingdom of God all throughout the world. Was on staff here for many years and has been a member here for decades. He went to be with the Lord just a few weeks ago. One of the things that Carl would say often, many of you heard him say it often, simply this, where is God at work? Are you noticing? Are you watching? Are you paying attention to where God's at work? Where is he at work? Wherever you see him at work, go jump in there. Take advantage of every opportunity. And then he says this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now here's Paul again using a word that we don't like. Always. 
always. Did, did he have to put that word in there? In my own personal time, as I was just sitting in this, this part of this passage and writing things, and I just wrote this out. I just said, and this is for me, maybe ultimately for you as well. Anyone at any time of any background or gender or race or culture, of any persuasion, of any authority, of anyone of value in this world, rich or poor, anyone of worldly influence or worldly insignificance, a parent, a sibling, a child, whether we're talking about the things of God or the weather, anyone at any time, at any place, always. When Paul uses the word always, he means always. Always let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. I don't think I need to do this, but just for the sake of clarity, gracious, what is that? What, what do we mean? What, what does it mean to be gracious towards outsiders? Well, grace means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, loving kindness, favor. doesn't mean we approve. We live in a culture that affirmation equals love. We're not saying that. It just simply means that our posture towards them, our specifically in this text, our speech is gracious and seasoned with salt. Season with salt is, is this idea of wisdom coupled with grace so that our speech becomes savory. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a speech that is so very salty that people want to keep coming back and hearing what we're saying. It's worthwhile speech. It's thought-provoking speech. It's speech laced with the love and the compassion and the goodness of Jesus as, as that is coming out of our mouths. Salt does two things. You know this, you've heard it before. Salt works to prevent corruption and it works to provide flavor. Prevent corruption, provide flavor. So it makes sense that Paul would use this analogy when he's talking about speech, words coming out of our mouths. When he wrote the, the Ephesians, if it prevents corruption, then listen to what he says. Ephesians 4.29, let no what? Corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as, as, good, as is good for building up as it fits for the occasion, that it may give, here, here's that word, grace to those who hear. Prevents, salt prevents corruption, but it also provides flavor. As I said a moment ago, that we would be salty in our speech which includes being truthful. We don't back away from the truth. We proclaim the truth of Jesus and the way of the kingdom, the way of salvation unto the Lord. We proclaim that. We do it with grace. You know, when Jesus gave those instructions to the 70, he continued right after that verse I read earlier. He continued and said this, he said, beware, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Only, don't miss this, only the Holy Spirit can lead us to speak in a way that is full of grace and seasoned with salt. If we try to do it in our own power, it won't be gracious and it won't be seasoned with salt. I know I'm a broken record when it comes to this. I know the horse is dead that I have, that I have kicked when I say what I'm about to say. But we have to keep reminding ourselves that the Holy Spirit within us, the power of Christ within us, is our power source to actually live out what he's called us to do that feels so very impossible. Such that we are so filled with the Spirit that what happens? Well, we go places we normally wouldn't go. We do things we normally wouldn't do. We risk things we normally wouldn't risk. We pray things we normally wouldn't pray. And what? And we say things we normally wouldn't say. Now, most of us hear that and go, that's right. That means I will proclaim hard truths when, I am, when it's hard to say them. Maybe, maybe, but that's not what I'm witnessing in the church today. We don't have any problem with that. Being filled with the Spirit for the church today most often looks like when I don't want to be gracious, when I don't want to be in a way, in any way, compassionate or kind, to do it with gentleness and respect, the Spirit leads me there. Gives me the ability to do something that within myself, apart from Him, there is absolutely no way that I could do it. This is why Peter concurs with Paul. In Peter's first epistle, he says, have no fear of them. Talking about the people that will imprison and persecute and so forth. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect does not mean that you don't talk to people about Jesus or proclaim truth about his kingdom and how very countercultural and weird it is to a world that wants to be outraged about everything. It doesn't mean that, but it just means that the way we go about engaging the heart of other people is something that can only be done through the power of the Spirit within us in such a kind and gentle and respectful and gracious way that it can only be from the very one who is those things. And he's in us. He dwells within us. So to sum up that part, we could say this. We could say only the Spirit of Christ in you can give you those two things. The, abil the ability to answer each person as you ought. And empower you to do so with gentleness and respect. Now I know, I know there are some that are just going, come on, man. Are you, are you alive in the world that we're in today, Pastor? Aren't there, aren't there so many things going on right now that we should be outraged about? Are you telling me not to be? We absolutely should have righteous anger about many things in the world. Absolutely. 
in my personal reading right now of, of the Word, I'm in the book of Jeremiah. I've been working through it the last couple of weeks. and It's a hard book to read because God's angry a lot. I mean, every page, his righteous anger is just all over what you read. But I want to remind you of something. God is righteously angry only a few times is this true, very few. He's not angry at the outsiders. A few times he is. 98% of the time, his righteous anger is with the insiders, his people, Israel. Now, what is it that he's so upset with them about? What is he so righteously angry about? So much of what he's righteously angry about is how they are treating outsiders. What I hear most commonly for justification for churched people to be outraged is, well, Jesus was outraged when he flipped the tables, and that gives me the right to do it too. Do you remember this? Where were the tables? In the church. He wasn't flipping tables in the market. He was flipping tables in the church. So let me be clear. There are many things, many things that Christians can and should be righteously angry about. Let me name a few. I'd say it this way. It's not okay how the world around us is redefining what it means to be a man or a woman. It's not okay. We should be righteously angry about that because it goes against what God has so very clearly designed in creating man and woman in his image. It's not okay that children in certain school districts are being exposed to anthropology and biology that runs contradictory to the teachings of Scripture. It's not okay. It's not okay how incredibly corrupt politics in America is, both sides. It's not okay. It's not okay that preborn lives are regularly murdered in the womb. It's not okay that children are being trafficked under our noses, not just out there, but right here in Atlanta. It's not okay that teenage suicide rates have skyrocketed in the last five years. It's not okay that the opioid crisis isn't improving and no one seems to really care. It's not okay that we can't seem to make any semblance of a step forward in proper and humane immigration and border control. And it's not okay that if nothing changes, this upcoming election cycle of 2024 will be just as steeped in outrage as it has been the last two cycles. And I could keep going, and I could keep listing, and we would be tempted, understandably so, to be a people of outrage. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you what was true for the first century Christians in the Roman Empire. Back then, it wasn't okay that the Roman emperor was to be heralded and worshipped as the highest deity in the empire. It wasn't okay that a plurality of gods were also worshipped. 
It wasn't okay that sex, sensuality, exploitation, and eroticism of every kind was practiced and glorified in every corner of the Roman Empire. It wasn't okay that women and children weren't valued as fully human and given the same rights and dignity as men. It wasn't okay that children born with deformities or disabilities were thrown out into the fields, literally thrown out into the fields to die by the Romans. It wasn't okay that Christians were treated as second-rate citizens and marginalized to the far fringes of society and had no rights. And it certainly wasn't okay that Christians were imprisoned and shackled and beaten and killed for following Jesus. And I could go on and on and on, such that first century Christians had every reason to be outraged. Yet, what Paul didn't write in that context to this Colossian church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what he didn't say. He didn't say walk in outrage toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be harsh, seasoned with contempt, so that you may know how you ought to shame each person. That's not what he said. By the grace of God, by the wisdom of God, by the power of God, he gave us an instruction that is so very counterintuitive and countercultural that would be consistent with the very nature of his kingdom. And I invite you to stand, and we're going to read it again together of what he did say. Let's read aloud our passage. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Oh, God in heaven, would you do it? Would you produce in us, through Christ in us, the very unique and different and conspicuously and intriguingly calm reality of a non-anxious presence in an outrageous world? Would you make us a people who are truly devoted to prayer, filled with thanksgiving, praying for each other to be those who take the gospel and take advantage of every opportunity and make us a gracious people, season our language with salt, make us, make us a people of salty grace, make us a people of radical dependence. And as you do that, O oh God, we will give you all the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.
You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.